Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this podcast of the National Stroke Education Center. I'm Jordan Bonomo, an emergency physician, neurointensivist, and stroke physician at the University of Cincinnati. And I'm here with my partner and good friend, Dr. Bill Knight, who is also an emergency medicine, neurointensivist, stroke doctor, and surgical intensivist. Dr. Knight is here to talk to us about gaming the conversation, how to have that real conversation with patients and their families when you're evaluating them for acute stroke care and treatment. Dr. Knight, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jordan. So I've had an opportunity over the years to watch you do this, and it's pretty masterful. When you walk in to see a patient who's having an acute stroke before the days of telemedicine, when we actually walked into rooms, something started happening in your head. You'd see what was going on. You'd start thinking about the likelihood of whether or not you had to treat them. You'd start thinking about the risks and benefits, the imaging, and then how to have that discussion with the patient and their family. Obviously, the patient, if we can, the family, if we can't, if there's a phase or some other language barrier. I wanted you to help us talk through for our audience what that conversation is like. What's your pregame routine? And when you walk in, what are you thinking? You think at light speed, lots of us are a little slower. Slow it down for us. Tell us what you do. Yeah, that's a good question. And it, and it is hard sometimes to, to digest everything you just said. I, I think I'd liken it a lot to juggling. Um, you've got maybe five balls in the air, but you're only got you know, you're only pushing to them around at any given time. And so that, that idea of what are you doing at any given time changes. So when you walk into a room, your first and foremost is really, is this a stroke or not? Um, is there something confounding it? Is it a mimic? Is there a reason why the person has the exam that they do? And then focusing on speed. And so moving through that concept of getting an exam very quickly to determine, and I think we've talked about it, this a lot, particularly in this platform, is is something disabling or, or, or is it not? Do they have something that is going to leave them with a problem um, long term? And then if I don't do anything about it, what's the worst thing that could happen? I think that's kind of the way that I frame that. And then again, moving back to that juggling analogy, it's digesting through everything you just said, looking at the images, looking at their CAT scan. This day and age, I think we have a, an added challenge of, of looking at CT angiograms and looking at very complicated neuroimaging that wasn't part of the game when we first started. And then coming around, looking at the labs and the whatnot to then sit down and have that conversation with uh, that patient or that patient's family. And the way I do that is to really break it down very quickly, very simply in terms of you're having a stroke. Here's what I think that that means to you. Uh, here's what I think is going to happen if we don't do anything. And here are the options that we have to treat you, whether that be medicine, whether that be no medicine, whether that be endovascular, and then get into the, some of that risk and benefit conversation. So as I listen to you describe that, I think I can envision largely what happens. I'm interested in some of the particular languaging you use, though, around things like risks and benefits. So if a patient's family says to you, well, Dr. Knight, this medicine that you're talking about, Alteplase, what are the risks? What are the benefits? How do you handle that conversation? Because I think it's difficult. And in our notes, we're always taught to write, we had our usual and customary discussion about it. But what is your usual and customary discussion around risk benefit? That one, I actually, I have that. I have that usual and customary because what I found is that the, the, the statistics and that, and that level from the paper is very complicated or from all of our experience is very complicated. But for a patient whose uh, education level may not be the same and they don't read papers and they may not have that statistical understanding, you have to break it down 
very, very simply. And I break it down threefold and I tell them and I lead off with that risk, which most everybody knows physicians and otherwise is that six and a half percent risk of an intracranial hemorrhage. And I lead off and I say, we have an option to treat you with this medicine comes a risk and benefit, or you wouldn't have a, a stroke specialist at the bedside helping with this decision-making. That risk is about a six and a half percent chance that it could make the stroke worse by causing bleeding on the brain. And that could make the stroke worse and it could cause mortality, could cause you to die. And then I go into a little bit more of that and, and we'll, we'll dwell on that and we'll talk about it. And that's, I'll stop and let the, the family and the patients ask questions about what does that mean to have a, a symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage and then some of the mortality risk. And obviously it doesn't change the mortality of somebody who's, who's having a stroke, whether they're treated or not. But then I move and go into what I think is just as important is what is the, the chance of benefit? And then really, because that number is um, not 94%, it's what's that chance of no benefit, no harm. And, and breaking that down from the simple statistics, it's this medicine's got about a 35% chance of helping you, of reducing your disability, of, of eliminating or, or taking that disability down. And therefore, there's about a 50% chance of no, no good, no bad. Those numbers don't add up to 100%. I recognize that. I tell the patient that. But then again, there's a lot of difference that, that general statistics don't cover. If you're a 40-year-old person with a stroke scale of two, your intracranial hemorrhage risk is not 6.5%. I tell them that because that's the safe, right, and ethical thing to do. But on the other flip side, if you're 85 years old and have a stroke scale of 20, your hemorrhage risk isn't 6.5% either. It's going to be higher. And, and I, I will increase that hemorrhage risk when I tell them that. And because of the different variabilities of your exam, the location of the stroke, the size of the stroke, your age, your comorbidities, I leave some wiggle room to that 30 to 35% chance of benefit, 50% chance of no benefit, no harm, 6.5% risk of harm. And that's 6.4% that you're talking about from the original NINS trial. And I think the data since then has really given us a point estimate, not dissimilar regardless of which trial. So I think most of us are pretty comfortable with that. Do you ever delve into numbers needed to treat and harm in a, in a statistical standpoint for your patients, or do you tend to leave that to others? I do not. I leave it really because I find that that, that conversation is, is often misunderstood or, or not well described even by people like physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses who may read papers may do that. I can't expect a lay public to get into that. And so I really break it down into, if I give you this medicine, one of three things is gonna happen. It's going to help you get better, it's going to cause harm, and nothing is gonna happen, no good, no bad. And those simple numbers, people can really wrap their mind around percentages and, and it, it's backed up by the literature that you referenced. I heard you say something that was pretty important. You said that it doesn't change mortality even if it causes a symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. In my experience, I've driven that point home a number of times because I think people hear that 6.4% and they, they think, well, heck, if I'm going to bleed at that rate, the likelihood of my, me or my loved one dying is much higher. And I, I remind them that it's actually not. Do you ever have patients who push back or families who really question that? Or, or have you been pretty successful with this conversation? Largely successful. I think most of us are in most of our practices. I can think on one hand where I've had uh, families uh, or the pa it's actually usually the patient because we're usually talking about a a minimally disabling or a lower stroke scale, I would be careful with the terminology there, of people saying, um, ha having really their, their own ownership into their own decision-making, that shared decision-making, and weighing how much disability they have versus even that 6.5% risk of harm of, of hemorrhage. And it's when they are trying to do that shared decision-making of weighing that risk versus what they're faced with that was, but then it gets into that disabling, non-disabling. And what I find in those instances is that they're judging their, their, their deficit to be not as disabling as one would otherwise think. And so less than one hand, people decline medical intervention with all the place 
because they don't want the risk of a six and a half percent risk of hemorrhage. Yeah, it's been my experience as well that it, it's a rare uh, family or person who declines, but I've certainly had them and I've always been shocked. In fact, some that were clearly disabling to me where I wouldn't even have thought twice about taking the medication myself. Uh, they were just adamant that they didn't want to do it. I, I struggle a little bit when families ask me, well, what's the rehab like? And my answer is I'm not a rehab specialist. I got information and data, but uh, the truth is brains do recover um, and they can do reasonably well, but we're talking about six and 12 month timelines. Um, I find that a, a difficult question to handle. Do you have any strategies for that? No. And I, and I think that to layer that complexity, what's also challenging and, and to be a, a, a good counselor when you're having this, again, under a time window, almost certainly, is that idea of what their chance of benefit is without treatment, um, because we know that people will get better without treatment and can rehab through that as well. And I focus on that same thing. I, I, I usually go into the 90 days, but then really focus on that six to 12 months of with rehab and then using knowledge of certain things, depending on your age. You know, if you have a, a full hemiplegia, the odds of you rehabbing that back is is zero, but there is comp compensatory um, using the the hypertonic leg to be able to walk with. Like your leg will still be plegic, but it'll be so hypertonic that you can use it as a cane. So using things like that and commenting that speech is one of the more challenging things to get back, but using um, you know media references of, of public figures who have had aphasia and can you sing to talk? Can you use other areas of the brain, the retraining to try to just give some example. But generally what I say is at the absolute worst, this is what you're going to be left with. With rehab, there is some chance of benefit. And, and I similarly don't know what that is. And because everybody's different, I, I cannot promise a rosy future. I think admitting that we don't know um, is really important and, and it allows us to engage with those families and, and really develop some rapport. And, and they trust us the more we tell them that we don't know, even if it's frustrating for them. Dr. Knight, any, any parting thoughts? You've got a, a trainee who's about to walk into their first stroke evaluation and they're like, oh, I'm nervous. What, what do I say? I think the most important part is to not focus on any one thing at one time and to be very good at rapid task switching. I think that that terminology of multitasking is a little overblown and you can't do it or you're going to miss something. And we've all missed things in the hyperacute phase of, of stroke management of imaging or, or labs or history taking or physical exam. And, and I think that bit is to rapidly task switch and be thorough in what you do and to have that, that usual and customary discussion to have that and, and know what those numbers are and be able to answer those questions because, you know, you have with medical therapy and, and even with the endovascular bit, you have a very short time window to be able to maximize recovery and to do that, to be transparent, um, to take the time where you need to do it, but then to be focused so that you don't miss something, I think is the most important part. Well, Bill, I'm going to thank you again for coming out and doing a podcast with us. As usual, I, I sit here and I learn from you, even though we uh, trained in parallel, shared an office back in the day and, and since then have backed each other up on call all the time. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for your time. Um, and thank you for listening to this podcast of the National Stroke Education Center with Dr. Bill Knight. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd on the go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.